Hello and welcome to another episode of our bonus series, Extra Milestone, right here on Cinemaholics. I am your damaged goods host, John Agroni, and with me I have, well, he can't remember his own name, but one thing's for sure, he's not 13 years old, it's Will Ashen. Hello. And look who it is, he puts the Sam and Samurai. Everyone welcome Sam Noland back to Extra Milestone. Oh, I love you personalized the intro to whatever we're talking about, especially for, for something like this. I'm honored to put the Sam and Samurai. Thank you, Joe. I'd, I'd like to say that I worked hard on it, but honestly, while I was watching Seven Samurai, I just took down notes and like the stereotypical like crumpled up paper with like rejected ideas, threw it in the garbage can, missed <laughs> the garbage can. Like it was a whole thing. Uh, Mike Wazowski style. I <laughs> yeah. love it. So for those of you who are new to Extra Milestone, this is our bonus series where we celebrate a an anniversary, a film anniversary, and the Extra Mile refers to films that really go the extra mile in their filmmaking and they're notable in more ways than one. So we are watching a, a big one, a big epic film. And we don't have, we've been talking about this a lot. We don't have hard and fast rules when it comes to doing extra milestones in regards to films that we haven't seen yet. But once again, <laughs> as is tradition, one of us has not seen Seven Samurai and we'll get that, get to that in a little bit. <laughs> Uh, this is our third uh, episode in Extra Milestone. The first one was It Happened One Night, which is where you're hearing that theme music. Uh, we just sort of decided to to keep that theme music because so you just you just have to know where you come from, if if that makes any sense. Oh. Yeah, although it was very tempting because I really wanted to lay down the Seven Samurai score for this episode. Oh, I mean, that would be magnificent. It would be it, it would be magnificent seven. You mean? But yes, uh, yes, yes, you catch my drift. Your Tokyo Drift, rather. Uh-huh. The second film we did in Extra Milestone was Some Like It Hot, which I have to say, we've only done two of these. This is the third. Some Like It Hot was the best yet. Let's see how this one goes. Seven Samurai. Oh, okay. Now, hmm. we do these by the month of their release date. Now, Sam, I know we had a little bit of a back and forth because the release date for Seven oh, Samurai, it's a little bit more complicated. Can you explain that to the listeners? Why, why did we run into some uh, trouble? Uh, well, we ran into some trouble, as you put it, because, as you most likely know, Seven Samurai is a Japanese film. And so even to this day, uh, international relations in the cinematic world when it comes to release dates is rather hazy, especially when you introduce like festivals and limited releases and stuff. So as a result, we had to sort of uh, make a little bit of an exception when it came to Seven Samurai because... The, the sort of the unspoken rule it sort of decided upon uh, when we started doing the show, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, to go with U.S. release, obviously, because we live in the U.S. This is an American, all-American <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but we <laughs> have wonderful fans one. and listeners all across the world. All so. over the world. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we, and we love all of them. But just for the purposes of uh, keeping it sort of consistent, that was sort of the, the unspoken thing that we had going for a, a whopping two months roughly <laughs> um, but what happened we was broke that, the rules uh, already seven, it's kind of sad broke the rules already we well, better earlier than later right so yeah. what we realized is that uh if we wanted to do seven samurai for this episode which we did dearly because mm -hmm. if i if i recall the options were not very uh not a wide ranging list of options for the month of april it, this is for the classic that we're doing the summer season as it's called now didn't really start until may at least uh now it starts like late march as early as it could be so there weren't a lot for april and so if we wanted to do 
Samurai, we'd have to we'd have to qualify it with the Japanese release date, which was, I believe, April 26. Yes, April 26 of 1954, 65 years ago. Almost. And uh, we realized that it was not released in the United States until several years later, 1956, right. in fact. So that means not only would we have to wait two more years until 2021, but we'd have to wait until either July or November of that year, depending on which uh, release we decided to go with. So rules have broken. <laughs> Which I want to say, we never really, we just sort of like said, oh, maybe that's what we'll do. I don't think, I th- this feels very much like a figured out as we go. And I like the idea of being flexible because it lets us have more choices and more range and we can make compromises here and there. I think the real... Yeah value of these conversations is not the technical release dates, but really these films in general and, and celebrating them. And I think that it felt more real to me, not real, but it, it felt more authentic to me for us to, this was a Japan film, a Japanese film. So let's go with the Japanese release date, right? Like that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I I definitely agree with that. So there will be a lot of semantics. This it's, it's caused lots of back and forth already john has already mentioned and i'm surprised we didn't start this episode with after many civil wars and cinemaholics yeah (laughs) but all right so we're talking about seven samurai and i have a feeling a lot of people listening have at least heard of this film once again third film in the row that is black and white and first film Mm -hmm. that we're doing that is a foreign language film and i want to say Yes, yes. And I want to say, uh, once again, this is another film where one of us has not seen it. And we're going to we're gonna talk about that now as usual. But first, first, let me actually say, if you've never seen the film, and you don't want to be spoiled on anything, you have time. We're, we're going to go through how we first watched this film. We're going to discuss the background <laughs> of how this film was made pretty briefly, but you know, we'll go through it. And then we're going to talk about the legacy of this film, sort of the impact it had on pop culture. Once we get into the plot synopsis, Will Ashton's going to start spitting wise about you know the actual details of the plot. That's when you know that spoiler season has come, and you need to get out of here because we're going to harvest all of the the barley of spoilers, <laughs> spread them out. You want you don't want to be here when that happens. If you've not seen oh. Seven Samurai, and if you've not seen Seven Samurai. You don't need to listen to any more of this episode, I honestly believe. I think that you just need to go see it, seek it out. But on that note, let's talk about how you can watch this film, starting with Will Ashton. Will, uh, how did you first watch this film? Yeah. Um, I actually picked up the Criterion DVD from my local library. That's right. Uh, when, when was this? When was it? <laughs> yeah. Just about a, a couple of days ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was okay. So I was getting to the point where this is your first time watching Seven Samurai. Big reveal. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have that very fresh, unique perspective. Uh, and so you saw the complete version, correct? I believe it's 207 minutes. Yeah, that's the version that I saw. I believe. Yeah, because I b- believe that's how Criterion releases it now. But there was at one point, I think they, because when it initially came out, they cut like 50 minutes from it for American audiences, and then I think when they digitally restored it, yeah. there were still a few minutes missing. I want to say, but. Okay, so Sam, what about you? Uh, when did you first see this film? What's your history with it, and how have you watched it over the years? It's it's a well, well, it's a semi-long history. When I was a, I'm I'm a young lad, youngish, youngest of us at least, and so uh, I didn't really start getting into like the classics of cinema, the real stuff, until 
2013 or 14, I want to say. And uh, I was just obsessing about everything I could, just trying to take in as much as I can. Still am, by the way. And uh, I kept hearing this title on like some greatest movies ever made or various lists such as those. And I kept seeing this title, Seven Samurai. I'm like, huh, what is that? And so I kept, I looked at it and it sounds very interesting. Why do they need, why, why won't four suffice? Yes, you know, that's right. Why is a, why are they going to need seven? And why didn't they get at least 10? Like they were supposed to all those good. Cause they'd come back with 15, of course. Well, they, uh, that, that was the prediction at first, yes, but we'll yes. get into all that later. Regardless, I kept hearing about this movie, seven Samurai. I'm like, well, I guess I've got to see it somehow. And I was, I was not as savvy to like ways to watch movie. I was sort of consuming just whatever Netflix happened to have. Uh, or whatever was available for free on demand. This was this was 2015. So I was get ready. I'm about to either shock or vindicate some of you. Reveal my age. I was 15 years old in 2015. So that means that I did not have a source of income, and so I was sort of at the mercy of whatever I could find for free. And as you might expect, Seven Samurai is not available for free on any of these streaming services. The Criterion service wasn't a thing yet, nor was Filmstruck. And so I was forced to to scrape together $4 out of petty cash that I had accumulated over my journeys and uh, and use my father's iTunes account to purchase it through that service. And I watched it on a little tiny phone screen, laying on the couch late at night, and just loved every second of it. And I could not believe, like, I had, I was amazed that there could be a movie this good. Like, that's how young I was in, um, in my cinematic life. And it instantly became one of my all-time favorites. And I decided I'm going to make it a tradition to watch it, to watch this movie every December, because that's the first time that I watched it. And so I watched it again, December 2016, loved it just as much, skipped 2017 for no particular reason, just wasn't wasn't feeling, didn't want to force it. Uh, and then watched it again just a few months ago, December 2018, again, just could not, just just couldn't, just couldn't handle it. As you can. <laughs> and then watched it again just today, just to, you know, because why not? It's, yeah. uh, it's sort of a treat now to get to watch this movie, that, that this movie exists just sort of makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, and I love it. Sounds like it's one of your all-time favorites. So I first watched this film when I was probably about the same age you saw it for the first time, because I saw Ooh. it when, yeah, I know, because I had this uh, family friend who, he introduced me to like all of the movies, basically all the movies that my mother didn't. Uh, he introduced me to <laughs> Westerns. I saw Searchers for the first time Ooh. with him. He introduced me to nice. all of the James Bond films. I had seen the Star Wars films before, mm. but he really took me through them because I had seen them at such a young age with my brother. But then he actually uh, sat me uh, down and explained the movies to me in a very meaningful way. Did he show you the Did he show you the Ewok movies? I was going to say that. Yes, he, he had me watch the <laughs> no Ewok kidding. Adventures one. Yes, I, I think we've oh, briefly talked about this before. The one where they have to like they use soap or something. I don't remember, but it was kind of out That's there. That's the second one. Yes. Oh, that That's is a weird movie. Red. But yeah, so very, very, <laughs> uh, very influential. I, I called him my uncle. He he really forged a lot of my interest in cinema as a young lad. And this wasn't my right. teen years. I, you know, way way after my James Bond phase, which is still ongoing. I should be fair. And my Star yeah. Wars phase. You know, I kind of came to him because. 
I was getting more interested in the older films. And so he let me watch his copy of Seven Samurai because he had it in the Criterion Collection. So it was the first time I saw it. And when I first saw it, I was overwhelmed. Like, I couldn't believe how much yeah. movie was in this. I didn't watch it in one sitting. <laughs> the first time I watched it in one sitting was when I truly fell in love with it. And that was a few years ago. when uh, I Actually, 2016, now that I'm thinking about it. And I think I saw it because it was on Netflix. And I had like a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. I remember on Now Conspiring, that show, you saying that you watch it again. And I was like, yes. That's right. That's right. And you you watched it a little bit after that, if I want to recall. Because I think that was like the summer of 2016. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Now Conspiring is a predecessor podcast to Cinemaholics. But yeah, when I watched it again, uh, you'll remember that conversation. I was just blown away by how much I loved this film. Seeing it as an adult, I think, made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And then watching it again today, I went through the whole thing again and loved it even more, uh, I have to say, just to get that out of the way. I just There, there are so many, so many things that I want to talk about with this film, but the big takeaway is that it, it it absolutely deserves all of the praise and status it gets. And so for me, it was a no-brainer to pick this one for Extra Milestone, for sure. But stay tuned yeah. toward the end of this episode. We'll talk about a few films that we're considering mm-hmm. for next month. Uh, there's there's one or two that we've we've narrowed it down to, and then we'll, we'll announce it officially, of course, on the main show. So that you can watch and follow along. Although I recommend whatever we, we note at the end of this episode, just watch both films, right? Yeah, just be safe. Oh, yeah. But all right, let's go through the background of this film. Uh, Let's dive into a couple of details just to give all of you some context. Uh, There were some things that I learned about the film that I never realized before. Uh, One of the main ones is, so of course, Akira Kurosawa, greatest filmmaker, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, uh, known widely as one of the greatest Japanese filmmakers of all time. He directed and co-worked the film, which I knew. I did not realize that he edited this film. Which is, oh, yeah. is kind of surprising because you don't hear a lot about directors editing their own films in this time period. At least I hadn't. But the yes. straight, yeah, especially as especially as painstakingly as Kurosawa did, as you'll as we'll probably discuss. Yeah, yeah, I read a lot of things about that of how he he really like every single frame he obsessed over, which you can definitely tell. Uh, when it comes to the details of this mm-hmm. film, you you freeze frame it and it's very meticulous. And the few things where the few things that don't really connect are that much more obvious, you could say. Mm. But yeah, the the screenplay was also co written by Shinobu Hashimoto, Hideo Guni. We are going to butcher names throughout this, so we apologize in advance. Uh, we'll do our best, of course. And it was produced by yeah. Kurosawa's longtime collaborator Sojiro Motoki. And the music is by Fumio Hasaka. So and and this is a Toho Studios film, which I think Toho Studios still is around and still is producing oh, uh, yeah. films. So it's yeah, it's still a huge, huge studio in Japan. Now, Sam, for listeners who have never seen a film by Kurosawa, and you know, for those listeners, I I've I deeply feel remorse. I, I hope that you jump into some Kurosawa <laughs> films soon because I think if you consider yourself a cinemaholic, Kurosawa is an absolutely essential filmography. To, to expose yourself to. You'll learn a lot about the influences of Western culture from Eastern culture because of Kurosawa's influence. And although I, there are some samurai films that maybe we could talk about that were not made by Kurosawa that influenced him. So that would be very interesting. But Sam, can you briefly explain somebody who is, who is uninitiated, they haven't had a chance to dive into the Kurosawa films. Can, can you briefly explain like why, why is he so well-renowned and what, what's his place in film history through your eyes? 
I would love to, John. I feel remorse as well for uh, anyone unfamiliar, but also uh, also a touch of envy that that someone gets to just dive in headfirst. Yeah. Um, especially now that the Criterion channel is up, they've got a whole bunch. Of, it, it, most of them, as a matter of fact, most of Kurosawa's films on the Criterion channel. Oh yeah, um, I forgot to mention that's how I watched the film the third time. I was through the Criterion channel, oh, nice. so yeah, it was on there and had to see it. It was very easy. Yeah. Of course, yeah, easy access. That's the the way of the future um so uh, so a kurosawa was a uh, director who worked all the way from the early uh 1940s to the early 1990s practically up until his death uh, he died in 1998 i believe and um he was known for uh nowadays uh, anyway is known for his uncanny ability to blend the sensibilities and sort of bring them together of in essence eastern and western uh cinema eastern cinema which is traditionally very very slow very contemplative not especially focused on plot um although there certainly is one but uh certainly about uh bigger ideas obviously because of the different cultures that produce them um and uh, western cinema is traditionally very focused on incident and sort of uh having having engaging plot that sort of never lets go and obviously these are huge generalizations but that's sort of that's sort of the deal with kurosawa um yeah. you'll rarely you'll rarely find and i think it, this applies to seven samurai surprisingly enough uh due, given its length um it is you'll very rarely find dead weight in a kurosawa movie everything is there uh, as you mentioned john because for a reason the attention to detail is just palpable it's right on the screen and it is it is just amazing to see every one of these movies, which is about something different, all of them feel different, and yet they're all clearly by the same director. Cinephiles across the world will often hail Kurosawa as one of the greatest directors of all time. Fun fact, I, I do consider him to be the greatest uh, oh. filmmaker of all time. I don't know if I've ever said that. Um, it's easy to see I, why, I, though. If you look at his collective body of work, it's hard to find a director who can compete with the amount of films and the hits to miss ratio for this guy. Oh, yeah. He, I, I've yet to see a bad film by Kurosawa. I haven't even seen all of them. There, I've seen about two thirds of them, I'd say. 30, he did right? 30, 30 or 32, depending on what you qualify. He co directed a few. Um, but yeah, so nothing nothing to sneeze at whatsoever and uh worked very consistently throughout the 40s 50s and 60s his career hit hard times in the uh 70s and 80s but he was still making stuff and he was still making great stuff and which which makes uh, sense though because in the seven, he well he made ran in the 80s which just really revitalized but yeah. the 70s were tough because that was the end of the the golden age of samurai films the, the golden age really was. was mid 50s to late 60s right so once you get yeah. out of that time period, it, it did seem like the public in Japan had kind of, they were a little over those types of films. And I mean, Kurosawa did some modern films to be sure, but they weren't as big oh, successes, yeah. right? Yeah, that was, uh, they were, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think some of the bigger ones, like the, he didn't direct just Samurai movies. That's sort of a, not necessarily right. a misconception, but that's sort of he did a modern, generalization. He did he modern did, films his whole career. Oh, yeah. Yeah, high and low is one of the greatest thrillers ever made. So, and that's that's contemporary Great. by 1963 standards. But yeah, it wasn't really until Redbeard, which came in 1965, which was his last collaboration with Toshiro Mifune, that 
that was sort of the send off for like the early part of Kurosawa's career. And in fact, that's when he switched over to color um, starting in uh, 1970 that would continue through the rest of his career. But yeah, to sort of, uh, to sort of uh, tie all this up just with the legacy and everything, um, he's in, just left an indelible mark in uh, in cinematic history, Japanese or otherwise. It is a uh, there's there's a uh, it's clear to see how how he went on to be so legendary and so inspirational to a lot of directors uh, who have gone on to be uh, incredibly popular, more popular than Kurosawa in the states, uh, including George Lucas, obviously, um, <laughs> right. and Steven Spielberg, and countless others, I'm sure, but just was just one of the hardest working filmmakers of all time uh, and wasn't, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later when we get to the behind the scenes stuff, was also a very flawed man, had a lot of problems, uh, was a notorious drunk on a lot of the productions, got violent at times, uh, or not necessarily violent, but sort of uh, could, was easy to anger. And mm-hmm. so just just makes his, uh, his legend all the more interesting. I think I highly recommend if you check this out from Criterion. Criterion has a lot of special features, but if you also go on the Criterion channel, you can check out Seven Samurai Origins and Influences, which is really wonderful yes. because it highlights one of my favorite samurai films of all time, which influenced um, Kurosawa, which was uh, Humanity and Paper Balloons. And the mm. truly wonderful film from Yamanaka. And you really see what was on Kurosawa's mind. The differences between those films are very distinct. Seven Samurai is a very unusual film compared to some of the samurai films from the, mainly from the thirties because forties, you didn't really have a lot of samurai films. uh, Not many. No, a lot of that had to do with the war and some of the restrictions from the Japanese wartime policies. But uh, regardless, uh, so this film it, we'll, we'll get more into the plot stuff later, but one thing to know is it is a period film. It takes place in 1586. Some of the history is a, little, is a little tough to parse out of like how historically accurate it is. It isn't really. There's a lot of stuff in here that you can kind of point out if you, if you know your Japanese history that might be a little bit of a stretch uh, in terms of sort of the politics of this, the, the feudal system, and whether or not something like this probably would have really gone down in the first place with bandits and everything. Yeah. It, it, it's, a little, it's a little tough to grasp, but you know, for the time this is coming out, I mean, people do know the history, but they're so used to samurai movies really playing loose with fiction that I don't think it really makes a difference. So... That said, this is a very long film. We mentioned earlier it is 207 minutes. Uh, it is Kurosawa's longest film. I believe that's about yeah. three hour, three and a half hours, right? Yeah, it's it's his longest, uh, but not by much. Uh, Redbeard is like three hours and ten minutes, yeah. so uh, wasn't one to shy away from indulgence. Uh, some might say it is a film that is broken up in two parts. It has an intermission. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, they did have to cut part of it for American audiences. And yeah, I guess you can kind of see why yeah. it, just to have this thing distributed would have had to be a huge challenge. Uh, that said, the, you know, I did Yankees a little bit of couldn't handle it. <laughs> Not just the Yankees, but the rebels and the, the California oh, yeah. gold rush folk. Right. But the uh, yeah. So uh, one interesting thing, I didn't know this either, Kurosawa initially with this film, he wanted to make a film about the day in the life for a single samurai, but he actually heard about a true story slash myth 
where a samurai defended a group of farmers, and he kind of fell in love with this idea of heroes being recruited to protect common people, because in Japanese society, that is a bit unheard of. Uh, the samurai are known for being for working for daimyo or shogun, you know, people who, feudal lords, right? People of power. Yeah. The samurai are like their, their king's guard, if you want to go Game of Thrones with it. They're knights, you know, people mm. who get paid to protect uh, these, these very rich people. And the samurai of yeah. seven samurai are ronin, which basically means that yeah. they're masterless samurai. There's a lot of fun things about this time period where the samurai of the feudal Japan were a lot like mercenaries. You know, the, there were still mm. a few centuries removed between this era of samurai and the end of the samurai, which you can see in films. A lot of the films of the 30s, like when the samurai becomes sort of like they don't need them anymore. That's actually what the Paper Balloons film is about. And that film is so much yeah. more bleak than this one. And this film is pretty bleak, <laughs> to be sure. But yeah, The Last Samurai, if you want to use a more modern example with Tom Cruise, that, that very much is about the end of the samurai, right? Um, yeah, th this I think one, so. I think this is like peak isolationist Japan, where they, they don't let anybody in, they don't let anybody out, that sort of thing. And in this film, you, you do get the sense that and we'll talk about this more when we get into the details of the film, that th this is a period piece that is absolutely made for a Japanese, a post-war Japan in the 50s, really grappling with World War II and the occupation of the U.S. after they lost, and then sort of dealing with some really mixed emotions about their national identity. So something to keep in mind as we talk further about the film. But uh, last couple of things, mm -hmm. it took a year to make. And it costs about $1.1 million if you want to go to yen from yen. And it made it made some money. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then the cast, as we've mentioned, is expansive. It includes Toshiro Mifune, who you mentioned. He's been in 16 Kurosawa films. Takashi Shimura, who's been in 21. Uh, Kaiko Tsushima, Isao Kimura, many, many more. And we'll probably mention a few of them as we go. But that said... Sam, what other legacy details should we cover before we talk about the plot? When it comes to Seven Samurai in specific, um, as we've sort of mentioned in a roundabout a couple times, it's often considered one of the best, uh, one of the best movies of all time. Whether it's just any movie or uh, you know non English or Japanese, it's always on one of the lists, um, and it's easy to see why. And not to mention that it's one of the most uh, sort of famous stories that sort of leaked into the consciousness in in many, many ways. Uh, such things as the Guns of the Navarone, uh, the Magnificent Seven, obviously, is a direct remake, um, both the one from mm -hmm. the 60s and the newer one. Uh, weirdly enough, A Bug's Life is literally the plot of Seven Samurai. Which, okay, I push up Circus against... Bugs. I push up against Bug's Life, I think, is a fun subversion of those tropes but we can get into that perhaps it is but when you but when you look at the when you look at just the just the series of events you know yeah. poor village is running out of food and needs and needs uh warriors to defend them it's literally the same thing so it's weird how it's sort of leaked down to this sort of uh kids movie with a whole bunch of bugs in it um uh, which which itself was sort of doing its own thing with uh the three amigos which is similar oh audiences sam pixar is for What's everybody that? You said it's a well, kids' yes. film. Pixar films are for all audiences. Thank Apologies. you, I, it, They all, they always are. The Pixar is is a uh, appreciable by all. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's sort of the the gist of it. Um, is just how how inspirational it was and how 
this day, it remains just one of the most highly uh, cited movies of all time. I happen to know a few lists that it's on. It's um, on the Empire's list of the top 100 foreign language films they made in 2010, I believe. Uh, it made number one. And so, and I would agree. I'd put it at either number one or two. Uh, it interchanges with another movie. Um, Which one is that? You can't uh, just tease us. Uh, it it would be uh, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves from uh, 1948. You're often uh, be- favorite film of all time, right? Goes back and forth. I, I I have started saying that Bicycle Thieves might be my favorite movie of all time, and it came out in 1948. So we got to wait four years to do the extra uh, milestone, and I'm not happy about it. But <laughs> we have to we'll have to take a look at uh, maybe some uh, fudging with the numbers, right? Some release dates. Fudging the numbers. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it holds a, uh, holds a perfect hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, which is not easy to do, um, yeah. especially given some of the critics out there and, uh, Empire Magazine as well on a different list. They made it the top 500 movies ever made. It made number 50, which is grossly low, but still very respectable. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's sort of, that's sort of a, a little snapshot of the impression it's left. Yeah, I do want to add, it is the best-selling home video title ever released by the British Film Institute, and BFI, it was instrumental in making sure that Seven Samurai would be preserved over the years, and it's sad, but a lot of great samurai films, you know, ones that have received glowing reviews are now lost to time and were never properly preserved. So we're very fortunate that Seven Samurai was. And I think it makes sense because it was such a big hit in Japan and in the West. And you mentioned it pretty well, Sam, that yes, like this is a film that has such broad appeal that you can retool it into a film like Magnificent Seven. But you can also show this film to American audiences. And even though they're not Japanese and they don't have the historical context in a lot of cases, and even though it's not something that has political social commentary that directly relates to Americans, it's so universal that that doesn't even matter. That you're able to really understand the humanity of this film regardless. So... Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, but it lost both to two films you've never heard of, probably. Uh, but yes, it was nominated for Best Art Direction, which includes like set direction, things like that, and costume design. Mm-hmm. So both black and white, I think. And it lost both. I, and be, I swear, I had never heard of the films that it lost to. I would be amused to see what it lost to, but I'm and I'm sure that they're not even that they're probably not even as good. But that's that's the past and there's nothing we can do about that so thank you bfi for keeping this one alive and thank you criterion too for digitally restoring it uh have a very respectable blu-ray that i've seen that i've watched multiple times with that we are going to dive into our thoughts on seven samurai will ashen what is the plot synopsis and for those of you listening this is your last chance to duck out if you haven't seen the film because we are going to be talking about things that happened throughout Uh, So you will be spoiled on certain plot details that you probably don't want to know ahead of time. (laughs) And unlike other episodes, we are not going to be doing clips because we just figured because you won't understand the dialogue unless you speak Japanese. Some of our listeners probably wouldn't be able to follow along. So that might be weird. Um, So that said, uh, Will Ashen, what, what is this film about? Uh, yeah, well, uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves, I just want to stress real quick that I apologize if I mess up any of these names or mispronounce them. Um, yeah, I am not a fluent speaker of Japanese either. So, uh, yeah, just putting that out there in advance. We'll do our um, best. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the film takes place in 1586. Yeah. It, uh, starts off in this kind of, uh, poor, peaceful village, 
in the mountainside where these bandits are kind of roaming around trying to figure out when they're going to strike again. And they figure, well, we kind of raided this village fairly recently. We might as well just hold off until they harbor some more food because this is mostly a farming village. Uh, in the process of them kind of explaining aloud what their plans are, a farmer in the village hears this and he warns the village that another raid is going to happen. And obviously the villagers are very upset about this. They are very, um, a lot of emotions in the film are very theatric, intentionally so. Uh, is that a theme in uh, Kurosawa's other films or just this one, Sam? It's it's a big thing. Uh, Kurosawa is big with the emotions, especially in some of the later stuff, uh, like uh, like Ron or Kagamusha. Uh, but it's it's a huge thing. They're they're uh, they're very expressive about how they feel. He yeah, has assume- he has a knack for not to interrupt, but he has a knack for showing like weaker characters will have very quick and blurted reactions to things, but the strong characters he uses the background of a shot to illustrate because they're, they're more stoic right so they don't have to be as expressive because he'll use rainfall or fire or even a mill going up and down to think like somebody's thinking like the gears in their head that's how he shows expression in his more strong characters so yeah it's all super deliberate yeah i just didn't want to speak out of turn so uh anyway yeah as um the village is trying to figure out exactly what they're going to do about this current situation they ask the village elder for advice, and this elder uh, notes that um, in his vision that he saw that they hired some samurai to, or at least I think just a samurai, to uh, kind of bring them to prosperity and help them defend themselves in this moment of need. And uh, as they band up to figure out how exactly they're going to get a samurai, they realize that uh, being the fairly impoverished village that they are, they don't have any money. But what they do have as farmers is food. So they're looking for hungry samurai to uh, help them out. And essentially they're going to uh, nourish them and also kind of keep them uh, in close quarters, uh, give them some home and sanctuary while they uh, help them out and uh, basically kind of preserve their livelihood. And in doing so, they uh, watch this one kind of aging Ronin who is uh, obviously, as I said, like older, wiser, a little more mature. And he rescues this young boy who's being held hostage by a thief in a kind of a clever, kind of um, practical, thoughtful sort of manner. They uh, obviously realize this is the guy they want. This is the guy they should be uh, having in their quarters. And they uh, basically ask that or the one um, young samurai is asking him to be a disciple of this man. And through some reluctance, it it, uh, eventually it's decided upon. He agrees to do it. But he also needs to recruit some friends because I don't think he feels that he can do it on his own. And that kind of begins the recruiting process where he invites this old friend of his and three other samurai to uh, kind of take part in this uh, experience. And um, in the process, they kind of uh, invite some more people, I believe. I don't know how how far do you want me to go into the plot synopsis? I mean, not that far. I I think that really sets it up. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I didn't know how far along you want me to go but uh yeah that's the kind of general like first hour uh view of the plot but i think yeah you mentioned we mentioned it bug's life i think that kind of does give you the, the blueprints here although the big difference between the films of course is that the the joke of a bug's life is that they're not really warrior bugs they're not really samurai mm. 
And in Seven Samurai, they are, and that's kind of the point. But that said, uh, so a few things. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, Takashi Shimura's character, who's sort of the leader, uh, Kambe. And uh, yeah, he's the one, he's he's the leader in the sense that he comes up with the main strategy. And then Yoshio Inaba plays Gorobe, who is the archer of the group. And he really is like the second in command. You get the sense that... He's not he's not necessarily the strongest of the samurai, but he's probably the smartest. Uh, he kind of comes up with a big plan for where the village's defense. And then you have Gorum, uh sorry, Shichiroji, uh, played by Dosoki Kato, who is kind of an older friend of Kanbei, and he he's you get the sense he's more of like a foot soldier, really. Like he just all around good at what he does. Uh, he has a kind of connection to Kanbei, so he, you definitely like their, their friendship kind of gives you a sense of the history for these samurai. You get a lot of personality and humanity just through their interpersonal conversations, which I think is very key. Uh, and then I'll just go through this. But yes, Seiji Miyaguchi plays Kizo, who is the, the Zen master samurai, clearly the strongest <laughs> out of all of them. Uh, the, the, his introduction scene is one of the best scenes in the film. And every scene he's in really is a stealer. But I absolutely I, I adore this this part in particular because it, it it gives a sense of like the famous samurai uh, Miyamoto who was like you know throughout samurai folklore he was a real person but he was like the ultimate swordsman who was like so deadly but also so calm and so serious but in in a way that made him all the more deadly. We mm. have Hayachi played by Minoru Chiaki who is kind of the woodshop. Uh, dojo guy <laughs> he's he's a guy who like literally he's like i'm not the best at this uh I, i'll do my best you know like i'm he's very modest but he's nice and he's charming and yeah. he's sort of he's sort of built as like i'm he's going to be the comic relief and they kind of bring him along because they want someone who's going to keep their spirits up but then really mm. Toshiro mifune is kind of the comic relief in the sense yep. that he is he is the <laughs> wild card the wild dog he plays kikuchio who is the the one who he doesn't even remember his old name, but he ends up being the heart of this film, even though he's temperamental, he's violent, he's hard to, to predict and he gets them in trouble, but they can't help, but fall in love with him the way that we do. Yeah. Openly jeopardizes everyone's lives on multiple (laughs) occasions. And yet there's something so, so magnetic about this character, Toshiro Mifune, as you mentioned, is one of uh, the most prolific uh, actors among uh, Kurosawa's filmography and this role where uh, as you said he plays sort of the wild card it's like what the hell is this guy if if this role was was portrayed like today in an action movie like in America it would be considered Oscar worthy because it's like it is layered in a way that you don't expect when you first see it and it's tragic in a way that hits you like when you when you least expect it and the way it all ends up and the way it begins hell the entire thing is magnificent i found out something uh while reading the trivia on imdb which is that uh kikuchiu which is not his real name um, right it, it's a name that uh that he steals like a scroll that he stole from somebody uh, that was somebody else's family tree and says hey this is my this is my family tree here uh, you know you'll notice that i'm the descendant of many samurai or something to that effect and they're like well according to this scroll you're 13 years old <laughs> uh and i also found out that kikuchiu is uh is a girl's name in japan <laughs> so that's the reason why they find it so funny 
Right, right. And you do kind of get that sense because they don't say it, but they do sort of act like it's a big joke. Like they don't believe it as soon as he says it. Uh, I guess it would yeah. be the same thing. It's like, yeah, like someone's like, my name's Nicole. And like, you'd be like, what? Is it really? Like, that's where the skepticism comes from. <laughs> what I love about his yeah. character, too, is that he is, he's such a roguish character. He's like a precursor to Han Solo. And we sort of mentioned that Kurosawa had a lot of influences on George Lucas and Sergio Leone films, of course. And uh, I think Han Solo, obviously, is kind of a a fun evolution of this character into sort of like a, a mixture of... Uh, Kikichio and Kyuzo, I would argue. So it was just kind of interesting. Because you do have like the Obi-Wan in Kanbe and, and, and all of that. And then the Luke Skywalker, of course, is the last samurai we didn't mention, which is uh, Katsushiro, who is played by Isao Kimura, who is the, the young disciple, as you mentioned, uh, truly untested. And he's the one who gets the big romance of the film. And before we move on to even more plot details and such, Let's talk about what we think. So I will say the general thoughts, I think people listening have gotten it. I love this movie. I think it's a masterpiece. I think that it's one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, I would be hard pressed to say I struggle to not have it as the best action film of all time. And I know not everybody agrees with that, but I absolutely think that the action in this is impeccable. I, I do think it's the best war film ever made, which is another maybe controversial thing, but I think the way that it displays tactics and, and just, war on screen the only film that in my opinion really competes with it is probably waterloo but i'm sure some people might say bridge on the river Kwai and, and you know mm. all quiet on the western front films like that but uh and then sam i get the sense that you at least like this film right i i you know it's all right it's uh you know uh not maybe not one of my favorites of all time but actually no it's one of my favorite movies of all time i would put it in honestly the top five ever made um if you go into my box you'll see it's on there it's uh i I love what you said i never really thought about this as a war movie until this viewing um but that is really what it is it takes place during the civil wars and uh wars of japan and even though it's not set against like huge backdrops with just thousands and thousands of uh soldiers and weapons and stuff um it is most certainly a war movie specifically in the way that it sort of gets to the characters over time. I get something different out of every, every time I viewed this. And that's, I think what I got the biggest out of this time was just the way it weighs down on everybody, this situation, which seems sort of just, just insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It's like, Oh, one village and a couple of the, you know, a couple of samurai with some bandits, but they just, but Kurosawa knows how to make that feel like, the entire world is at stake, essentially. And so I think it's one of the greatest things ever made cinematically. It's it's a, it's a tough balance because you're supposed to really care about Rikichi. He's kind of the main villager that has the most sympathy. And mm. I think if I've heard any complaints on this film, it is that some people just don't find the villagers compelling enough or sympathetic enough because they're so flawed. And people go mm. back and forth on that. I think that's that. kind of it the idea honestly right it's like if they were just these pure perfect victims i think it would be a little preachy almost but i personally Mm. like that they're human beings and it's less about you wanting them to survive and it's more about wanting to see these samurai you know serve the master of morality necessarily i think that is the more important thing here but okay will ashen we put this out long enough uh you saw this for the first time we want to hear what is what is what are your general thoughts on this film? What did you think of Seven Samurai? Will? Yeah, I gotta say it's um, 
It's better than the Magnificent Seven 2016. Oh my gosh, mm. I knew you were gonna. What about 1960? That. I haven't seen that one, so I can't comment. Uh, on okay, that. I, I, uh, uh, yes, I love that it's, one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I know at least a couple people who say it's one of their favorite films. So um, I know it's definitely uh, a popular film. At least um, I was reading I, um, Sidney Lumet and Arthur Penn. Uh, they wrote a couple things in the booklet for the Criterion DVD that I got, and I was reading their thoughts, and I'll comment on that later. But one of them said it was that Magnificent Seven was a popular film, if not quite. Uh, I forget exactly how I phrased it, but he was. It was a kind of weirdly kind of backhanded compliment they gave <laughs> Magnificent Seven, which was rather amusing. Um, yeah, no, it, it's definitely very good. I, I don't know if I can really say I'm like on the level you guys are right now, just because I only watched it a couple hours ago. Or I finished it a couple hours ago, I mean. Uh, and so I, I'm still processing the film in quite a few ways. But uh, yeah, it's I can't honestly point out any flaws. It's definitely a very good film. Cool. What what stuck out to you then, seeing it for the first time? Was there anything that kind of surprised you that you weren't expecting with the presentation in any way? The writing, cinematography, anything? Yeah, I mean, I think what really took me aback was the patience of the film. And the way that um, the film, like I think Sam was saying off the air, it's never really boring. Like it, it never has like a dull moment or it doesn't have, like you said earlier, like anything that's uh, unnecessary or superfluous. Everything is kind of tactically put in there. And as we said, it's a very, very long film, but it moves at a very gradual pace. But you never really get like any dull periods in it. There's never really like a lull where you kind of uh, like zone out of it, per se. I mean, there's definitely a point and I, I think it's great that they have an intermission where it's like you can feel the length of it or you, you can feel that like it's going to get very long or you, you feel like the downside is going to come so um in the sense of the story and the morality of not quality wise but um yeah no I, I i definitely think uh the thing that struck me the most um beyond some of the the, the beautifully choreographed uh, scenes of the film as you mentioned was the pacing was what really stood out for me yeah, I, th- I think, Sam, you're right in the way that you said that there's never a dull, like, no, no moment is wasted, I think is what you were alluding to. And mm-hmm. the way that you can break this film up, so there's two parts. The first part is the the existence of the threats, and then we spend a lot of time with the farmers at Rikichi, mainly, uh, as they're trying to find and recruit these samurai. And then the samurai show up, they come to the village, and then they, they make their plans. And then it's not really though the second half of the film where the battle takes place. It's probably more of like, I want to say the last third of the film. Maybe it's about, it's about an hour and a 20 minutes, maybe of like pure action. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe less than that, maybe more like an hour and five minutes. And you you spend, you spend all that time. It depends on like, if you count like the scouting mission and, and certain things that happen in the third act, but it is a film that does defy the three-act structure in a lot of ways. Uh, although you could say that the first act is the setting up to get to the samurai. The second act is the samurai preparing. And the third act is the battle. But it's funny, though, that, well, you say the pacing is so good because those those segments of the film are not really close or resembling each other in the length of like a film normally like that. Usually your third act is not as long as your second act, basically is what I'm trying to say. And that's yeah. the case here. <laughs> and that's kind of what makes it stand out. I think. Uh, well, but, okay. Um, I was curious though, if you can tell me uh, what was the, what were the 50 minutes that were cut out of the American release? I don't know. 
Yeah, that is, I, I, I look I looked for that. It's uh it it looks like it was just they took little parts here and there and it eventually added up to fifty minutes. There wasn't like an entire subplot that they lifted out, is is what I got the sense of. Okay, there, I wasn't sure if you were saying what's up? No, I was gonna say I wasn't sure if it was like the romance or anything of that nature that they might have taken out, or uh, they made some scenes quicker. I was just very curious what what they would have uh, superimposed out of the film. So that would be I, funny if they literally just sped up footage so that it would just be short. I honestly, I think a lot of it probably was certain things in the second act where they drag out some of the ways like they show you how the farmers are in dire straits and there are a lot of uh there's a lot of uh, wheel spinning sounds negative but there's a lot of things going on in the second act to really stress the importance of this like these people are doomed if this doesn't work out uh that they probably cut out they probably cut out some of the humorous moments uh much to this film's detriment i would say if that was the case because yeah the humor, I think, is what really makes this stand out. I that that's something that stuck out to me in this this third watch. Of like, I forgot how funny this movie is, mainly with yeah. uh, Mufune's character. But yeah, what what else? <laughs> you you kind of touched on this, Sam. But what what did stick out to you on this this viewing the most? And at the end of the day, which is not a phrase I like to use mainly usually. Uh, oh yes. But at the end <laughs> of this day that we're talking about this film. What what do you what do you think this film is really about? You know, it, that's a uh, that's a big question, um, and, uh, why and it's why I asked it to you. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your faith. Um, I think really what it's about because because what really stuck out uh, stuck out to me this time was, as I mentioned before, what what I forget how I phrased it, but um, uh, something along the lines of. Oh gosh, I completely just my I completely just lost my train of thought. What what did I say earlier? Because it's a couple of things actually. Okay. <laughs> Hang on one second. I maybe just start over your thought. Oh uh, yeah, I completely forgot. What did I say earlier? I know it was something. Um, like a couple moments earlier, or earlier in the podcast. Uh, no, it was it was something that I said was that stuck out to me especially this time. Um, I don't remember either. Oh yeah, uh, I remember the war talking. element. Were you talking about that? It was oh. that. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, and the sort of the flawed nature of the villagers. Okay, all right. Sorry about that. That's I. I told myself I wouldn't let this happen, but we'll it we'll edit it into perfection. Into perfection. That's just the way I like it. Okay. <clears throat> all right. The thing that uh, that really stuck out to me earlier, as I said, was the war element. How it's sort of hanging over. Uh, the entirety of this movie, specifically towards the third act, if not being directly addressed within the confines of the movie. But also, uh, what really got to me this time, that just for whatever reason, hadn't really fixated on uh, the first couple of times I saw it, was villagers. Uh, as you mentioned, there is the one farmer, Rikichi, who's sort of focused on uh, more than the rest of the villagers, and there are a couple other select ones. But for the most part, viewed as sort of this mass of, uh, I don't know, 150, maybe 250 villagers sort of roaming around the the village throughout the entirety of the movie. I read that, uh, in fact, uh, Kurosawa developed like an extensive family tree for every cast member, even the extras, that they wow. would know 
what kind of chemistry to have with which extra. And so I'll bet you anything that if you look closely, you can see that at work. So that is just the amount that Kurosawa poured every ounce of effort into this pot. Um, but one of the first things that happens is when they're sort of, they realize that bandits are about to attack, the villagers do. They sort of overhear them making their plans. They come back uh, and they're like, what do we do? And a lot of them are sort of just deciding, well, guess that's it. Guess we're done for. Guess it's just uh, waiting until the end. Um, and you realize that just doing, that, that giving up uh, is is easy, frankly. That it's just like, okay, well, give up. That's over with. I don't have to. I don't have to stress about anything now that I've accepted the inevitable end. And it isn't until Rikichi says, "Like, no, why don't we give them a taste of their own medicine and see what we can do and and fight back in some way?" And at first, that seems very heroic. But as the movie goes on, you start to see, in various ways, how all of these villagers—maybe not them specifically uh, as individuals, but sort of as uh, a community, I guess is the word, some of the decisions they've made and the way that they react to the samurai. Like the first thing that happens uh, when the samurai arrive at the village is they're completely ignored. And it's not until uh, Toshiro Mifune, Kikuchu, rings the the alarm to say that bandits are here as a false alarm. To say like, oh, now you come out, huh? Uh, and and Which you start to Which incidentally is what get the other samurai to accept him. Because they're so it, impressed with that move. Yeah, they, they see it as a, an act of tact rather than a mischievous uh, mischievous little move. By the way, just a side note, I love, uh, we haven't really talked about the music lift uh, yet, but there, Kikuchu has his own theme that's this really mischievous, like woodwindy sound that I never really noticed before. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's pretty funny to hear. Like every time you hear that noise, it's like, ooh, Kachu's up to no good. I can't wait to see what happens. Uh, but that's just a side note. Um, as I was saying, you start to learn things about the villagers that, um, and you realize that they aren't really the best people necessarily. And yet there is a speech that Kikuchu has like a little bit before the intermission. It's a very famous speech. Um, I call it the, I could laugh till I cry speech. There you go. That's that's a there's there's a lot of a lot of things that could be compared to, but where he sort of just lays bare everything that we've seen thus far, and sort of put it all into context about what the, the lives that these farmers have to lead, and what it's done to them, what war and um, and just being destitute has done to them. And can we really blame them? And what I love about the movie is that it doesn't really provide a definitive answer um, in a way that's completely intentional. When the movie ends, uh, which I won't really specify necessarily, I don't think it's uh, important, but maybe we can get into it if we want. But when the movie ends, it doesn't come down on any one side and say who was right and who was wrong. And I think it's a very fascinating depiction of not only the world but what can we do uh like what when we understand the complexity of the world uh and accept the losses that are inevitable with it uh what 
what truly matters. I know I'm getting really existential out of nowhere, but I think it's really it, it's how good this movie is and how universal it is. Um, I'm glad you brought that up though, it, because it's hard. You can't escape the fact that Hiroshima happened a decade before this movie came out. Yeah, and that was almost, an event where the people, the victims of that event, weren't you know necessarily soldiers. It was townspeople. It was everyday citizens. Yeah. It was people who felt like they could have used somebody protecting them in that moment. And here comes a movie that's sort of saying like, how could you blame them for what happened? Yeah. And also, and I think this is incredibly daring. Um, is, is it worth it? Are we uh, just metaphorically speaking, are we as uh, humanity worth saving? And I think it is, this is, although it's not uh, like based on a comic book, I think this is what all superhero storytelling is essentially about, is what is the responsibility of those who have the ability to do something? What is their responsibility toward the ones who can't? Um I'm and having, is 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 that worth it? What is it? I'm I'm having flashbacks to that scene in Man of Steel where it's like, I could have saved him. Maybe you shouldn't have said his <laughs> dad. <laughs> but no, I I see it, exactly this, what you're saying. Yeah, this this movie is a is ten billion times as good as Man of Steel, but that's a completely different as uh, good as I think. Okay, as good as uh, <laughs> maybe a maybe same on level, par same with, plane. I'd say on par with Superman Returns, maybe. Um, oh, but that's gosh. a completely different conversation. Yeah, we have to, oh, yeah, we have to note there. the sarcasm. We have to, please. Um, I, 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 I have to go to sarcasm. Okay. Again, again, <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm glad you brought this up, just because something that stuck out to me when I was seeing this again that I never really noticed before was during the, the third act, you get to a point where I had never really thought of this before, but I was like, wait a minute, why are the bandits still fighting? You know, what, what is driving them to, despite, you know, suffering heavily losses, despite at one point being outnumbered, why are they still trying to fight these villagers? And that's when you kind of get the sense that they're doing it out of necessity at this point. It started as vengeance because yeah. the samurai preemptively burned down their, their, ha their, uh, their hideout. And so yeah. it starts as vengeance of like, we got to get these guys. And then it turns into the conflict. But then at you get the sense like they have to defeat the villagers because if they don't, they're going to die. They, they're not going to have enough yeah. food. They sort of allude to this. And that's why they fight to every last man. Cause that was something I was struggling mm -hmm. with. I was like, why wouldn't they just try to escape or make a deal or something like that? But no, it has to be a decimation. And if that's not a, as great a commentary on war. So I think what you're saying, we're like, who was really right about it? then I don't know what is because the final shot of that film really lays it out. The final you know, line of dialogue, in fact, of like, who does this victory yeah. really belong to? Uh, I think really stuck out to me this time more than it has in previous viewings. Mm. I think that's a very good analysis. I would also argue that uh, perhaps not to, not to the greatest extent uh, as some other big action movies might, but I would argue that the band, in that case are almost metaphorical they're not faceless per se uh but none of them are really focused on extensively there are a yeah. few that get more screen time but for the most part they're just soldiers and i like that there's there's a handy device 
and where they got a big map of the village and they had a little circle on the map to represent every every bandit so it's a great way it's great cinematic lingo to well, just to illustrate very in a way it it does yeah and so it could almost be argued that this is just uh, that they are just the force of uh maybe evil is too strong a word well it's but a monster an, movie they're like force. Yeah, they're kind of like the monsters of the movie. It's like we got to stop them. They're they're not really treated with a lot of depth. I know that you you would not say that about monsters in kaiju films necessarily. They get lots of death, I'm sure, but I think in the stereotypical no, way. No. <laughs> I mean, they, a lot of them wear masks. A lot of them really are portrayed as not multidimensional, and so you're not supposed to feel bad yeah. for them when they lose until the end, uh, in a way, even. And you're asking yourself, was like, like you said, is this worth it? Was this violence worth it? Could they have avoided this somehow? And they're like, even though the villagers are portrayed as imperfect, so are the samurai. The samurai are portrayed many exactly. times as being deeply flawed. And the fact that they recognize that and sort of like exhibit shame over that fact was is very interesting to me. And uh, that said, there, there is something else that I do want to bring up in terms of what this what deeper truths this film might be revealing. And that that is the idea of like the romanticized samurai before this film was the, the samurai who fought for, for loyalty. Loyalty was the thing with, with that kind of samurai. It's like they would sacrifice their life for their Lord, the person who hired them. And that was deeply tied to Japanese sentiments about loyalty and honor and Bushido. But what's very unique about yep. Seven Samurai and why I think it connects with Western audiences is that you literally have Western ideas in here where you have at one point one of the samurai, I think it's uh, Hayachi maybe, or it's either Hachi or Gorombe, who is like, mm. oh no, it's Gorombe. He's he's therapizing with Richiko and Rikichi. And he's telling Rikichi, like, hey, you know, like, something clearly happened to you, something bad happened to you, you should talk about it. Like if you actually, it was Hayachi, I'm sorry. Hayachi talked to Rikichi because it was before Rikichi finds his wife uh, in the concubine. And he's he's yeah. telling him, he's like, you should talk to somebody about this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's very, that's kind of a more of a Western contemporary thing that they're putting into this movie where like the samurai is being portrayed as a human being who actually is going to, their loyalty is to humanity and to country and national identity, not necessarily a feudal lord, which was kind of radical for the time, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Is that making any sense? I think it does make sense. I think it's uh, it speaks to why this movie is so accessible, as we've sort of touched upon a couple times. I think another another thing that adds to that is that this movie, the hook is so simple, and it's uh, it's dealing with such universal things. We are peasants, and those we are good guys essentially, and those are bad guys. And if the bad guys win, we won't be alive anymore. So we need other good guys, and all they want is also to live. Essentially, they want food and shelter. It's it's so uh, simplistic, and yet it's able to get so much uh, so much meaning out of it. Just with with every character, every one of these characters, you can clearly tell has a backstory and it's yeah. what makes it so re so uh, rewatchable is sort of knowing these revelations that come later in the movie watching it back knowing that those are there haven't been revealed yet but that have happened uh adds a whole extra level of thrill that that uh just makes it effortlessly uh rewatchable but to what you're saying sam every subplot every character relationship 
it, it, yes, the, the story is simple. The plot is simple, we should say. But they all come back to the same theme of power. Power is like the deal with this movie. It's like the power of the samurai, mm. the power difference between somebody of noble birth and someone who is a peasant, the power that the bandits use to inflict fear. That's what all of this is really about. The, the power that Shino doesn't have to stand up to her father, the power that Rikichi doesn't have to stand up for himself because they feel like they don't mm. have it. And this is a film saying that you can have it. You know, in the end, Rikichi does stand up for himself. He does find a way to become the the sort of person who can fight. And Katushiro uh, finds that he and Shino can have power, like an agency in their relationship. And they don't have to... I, I, I have to bring this up. Does the Catholic Legion of Decency know about the heaps of premarital <laughs> sex happening in this movie? <laughs> Before well, the I Catholic forget. Legion of Decency wasn't operating in Japan, so I imagine they weren't terribly. This movie with. came out in the states before they disbanded. That's true. Believe. Maybe uh, you know, maybe they didn't have the patience to sit through the whole thing, and were like, <laughs> "There you go. Oh, well, it's probably fine." Right, right. Um, Will Ashen, Sam, and I have blathered on and on, but what what are your takeaways? I mean, do you feel like? I'm sure you probably want to have to see the film again before you make any sort of declarations, but. Was there anything challenging about this film to you in any sort of way? Uh, beyond the length. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously, though, like the length and like watching this film, like were there challenges that you ran into? Um, I mean, context wise, not particularly. I mean, length was probably the primary one, primary one. But um, I mean, definitely as the film was winding down, and it got to its end point. Uh, the final scene of the film. I was really thinking like, you know, this movie's like it it's nearly four hours and you get to this point that seems fairly bleak or like, you know, fairly uh somber in its uh final note. And I was really thinking about it and there there is like this kind of weird like uh balance to this ending where it is it's a happy ending and a sad ending, and that's not to say that's bittersweet. I mean like it it just like you in some ways it is a happy resolution and in some ways it is very greatly sad as far as the villagers. I mean, obviously they, they have like this peace and unity, but at the same time they sacrifice uh, any sort of individuality that was found prior to that. And uh, in that sense, like talking about the Hiroshima element, does that, is that unity for the best at that time? Is that what is necessary to make things prosper? Or is that just like how they feel they can resolve the issues that they've gone through at that time? And I, I think there is something about that that's very kind of happy and sad. And then looking at the samurai, obviously, I mean, for them, they don't see it as a victory. It's to them, it's a loss. But they did succeed in what they were trying to do, if only to an extent that they have to bury more than the samurai who have remained and that final shot really captivates that really yeah. well. So, I mean, I think in the end, I mean, especially as I think more about, um, I was reading, like I said, Sidney Lumet's thing, and he was talking about the film isn't so much about like what happens, but more like how we follow these characters and the emotions they bring and like how it's ultimately that persistence or that element of like, against all these odds, against everything telling them. I mean, especially at the beginning, they're very much like, we're probably not going to make it out of this. Like, I mean, is it really worth our lives for this, like, peasant village that, like, you know, is just, to them, a kind of ugly and smelly and, like, you know, not really of great value, but it's more of that persistence, that human element that you were referring to, or Sam was referring to. I forget whom exactly was saying that, but I think that's the element that really stands out for me upon this first watch, is that you get to see that persistence, that kind of human element that carries these uh, assorted gentlemen into their, uh, and some of them 
their final hour in some ways the final hour of the film so uh yeah i mean that's just kind of what's standing out for me upon this first watch i have to mention it's a big spoiler but i used to think it was a flaw the way that the last two samurai die uh not the last two i i would say the penultimate one without spoiling his name because he's portrayed as such such a badass and he dies by a musket that no one could have seen coming. And he, the whole key to his character was testing the limits of his skill. That's what Kanbei sees in him. He's, he's such a powerful character. And the fact that he gets brought down by a literal weapon of the future that probably didn't exist in this time period. Did, um, <laughs> this is really random, but did Rogue One take that from Seven Samurai? They do something similar. Uh, not really, because, well, Donnie Yen is kind of a a semblance of the Miyamoto iconic, right? Like what he's doing in that of like the Zen master, but he gets a cool, he gets a cool moment, right? Where he like uses the force and like walks over to the thing. But this character is just like running with the gang and then just gets downed. And to me, that's like one of the, that's, that's probably the most tragic death because he's cut down in his prime, but he never got to test the limits of his skill. It's like Mifune's character when he eventually meets his end, there's kind of a beauty to it. There's like a poetry to it where you you kind of get the sense that he accepts it, but it's way bleaker, I think, with Kyozo. I'm just saying their names now because <laughs> yeah. at this point. But do you know what I mean, Sam? I'm literally crying right now, John. That was that was fantastic. Yes, it's the way that it all goes down. Cause like they cut down, like, you know, it's like, all right, we got the bandits over here. Let's go. Yeah. And they start running and then just out of out of nowhere, literally. Yeah. You just this deafening gunshot and you see Kiyuzu fall down. When he's and covered in the mud. No music. Ugh. Covered in mud. It's raining out. Uh fun fact, uh Kurosawa uh dealt with rain a lot. And yeah. uh, because actual water that they put in, like the ray machines, didn't show up well on the film, they tinted it with ink. And so that's why it makes it extra muddy. Um, mm. But yeah, anyways, uh, getting back to the thing. And then it's just this A, symbolic of the gun, you know, defeating the sword, uh, but also just narratively tragic because they're almost done. Like they, the last two bandits, one or two anyway. Uh, they're down to the last couple of them. Yeah, and the fact that it just had to end that way is is just speaks to the effectiveness that this movie manages to build over. Yes, again, a long period of time, but I think it needs it. I think Kurosawa has. I think uh, we'll use the word patience, and I think that is the perfect word for this. Um, when I when I was watching it this time, I found myself comparing it a lot to. Uh, to some of the bigger blockbuster movies we have, uh, we have now specifically the Avengers series, which is obviously another sort of uh, distillation of Seven Samurai. Uh, and when I watch one of the Avengers movies, all three of which I like, by the way, um, and uh, the f- the fourth one I have no doubt will be will be good as well. But I when one when an action scene starts, I find myself sort of checking out like, oh, okay, and now this is the action scene. Uh, let me just sort of wait for this to wrap up. Maybe it'll be cool, but I'm just sort of waiting for it to wrap up so I can get to the next uh, bit of drama or exposition or whatever. Here, it's never. there's never a jarring shift whatsoever, even in the editing. It's so seamless between the character building 
the you know even just from a plot standpoint gathering the samurai preparing the village even the strategic use of the screen wipes which george lucas would eventually use for star wars are so perfectly placed yeah it's there's one edit in particular that i'm like oh my goodness look at that that's fantastic uh where it's just so perfect but that's just gushing over the editing um I love the way it sort of wanders in the second act, just sort of wanders throughout the village, showing what each of the samurai are doing to prepare the villagers. And then when the battle finally starts, it doesn't feel like we're just going, oh, hard shift into the action. Uh, it is, it, it's so seamless and it just tells the story so patiently and so quietly, which I love. The, the use of music in this is so sparing. There's a lot of ambient noise, which is one of my favorite things that uh, Kurosawa does. Um, and it all adds up into this just un unforgettable incredible experience that is seven samurai and that i just that is just such a treat for me to go back to every time experience such a wide range of emotion again it's 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 hilarious i laughed out loud at a couple of scenes in this um it's tragic it's sad it's genuine it's it's everything and it's not this is not the movie you would expect that kind of thing from you right. know this sort of uh high concept you know men on a mission kind of movie but that is that is why i will i consider this one of the best ever made we we um, could talk about this film for, for hours we, we could talk about this for, for probably days. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, seriously, it it is that kind of film. It's the kind of film that an entire podcast should be dedicated to just this film. I mean, we haven't even touched on, and you know, I'll to sum things up as we wind down. I'll uh, just touching upon my point earlier about how I consider this probably the best action film ever made. I think that yep. this is very much a genre film, but it's the kind of genre film that yes, it's it's action, it's war, it's got drama, it's very high concepts. But it does what the best genre films do, which it uses a period setting to talk about society as it is right now. In that sense, it was post-war Japan. And I think it tells that story beautifully. And I think it's a historical landmark in that sense of uh, what it says about Kurosawa's thoughts on Japan in the late 40s and early 50s. But then the other thing is that just the action in this film is so stylistically avant-garde, especially compared to previous films, and the experimentation that Kurosawa did with the telephoto lens. You know, this is one of the first films you'll see where there, there are shots of some of the editing, which you mentioned, where he zooms in, he zooms out, and the shot will be where the horse's feet are. It's, he'll capture these wide shots of these epic battles so you know where everything is, everything that he's staging. That's why I compare it to Waterloo in terms of how impressive it is in the wartime action. But then it, also, he'll zoom in on things. He'll zoom in on faces. He'll zoom in on the chaos of a moment to show you rapid movement. Uh, because Kurosawa, of course, is known very well for how great he was with movement in general, with his blocking, for instance, uh, where, mm. where characters go, what part of the set they go to, uh, everything from moving in certain directions to convey their emotions. <laughs> like this guy really knew what he was doing when it came to human expression through movement. And so the fact that his action film, I think this is probably his premier action film, is so masterful at conveying that. I know some people think Ron is probably the best, but, and, and I understand because Ron it's has- very operatic. It, it's, yeah. I mean, that movie is just bigger than big. But what I like about this one is the more, the, it does feel like smaller stakes, but with a bigger feeling. And then also just yeah. the fact that 
the, I just think it's pitch perfect in the way it cuts back and forth between seeing the entire battle and then seeing it zoomed in. And the last thing I'll say too is that if you watch a lot of samurai films from before this, they're so it's like comparing the lightsaber fights in the Star Wars prequels to the ones in the original <laughs> trilogy. I mean that because the ones yeah. in the prequels feel so choreographed. Like it's not real. It it feels overly done. Whereas the ones yeah. in the original trilogy are pure emotion. You know, it's not about defeating yeah. the opponent. It's about being better than the opponent. It's about a, a battle for the mind, a battle for the soul. And you get that in mm-hmm. all of the sword fights in this film. You get that whenever... Uh, you know, you see Kikuchio like trying to, desperately to take down these horses. It's not the most graceful action you will see, but that's what makes it so perfect, I think, because it captures the chaos and the the violence of war. It, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty revealing too that only one of these characters dies in fair direct combat, and that's Gorombe. Yeah. He's the he's the only one who he died, but he dies off screen, right? And he's an archer. Yeah. It's it's not really a, a, a death that they they figured would be all that visceral, and and that's why the violence here isn't to make you ooh and ah, it's to make you think, and it's to make you pause and think about violence. And then all the other deaths. I mean, Hayashi yeah. dies by accident, basically. Uh, he dies because of Rikichi, actually, technically. Yeah. And that yeah. is that is the, probably the second most tragic death, and then you know Kikuchio he he dies because he, he just he's being too reckless and he just goes right in. But he, it really is more of a sacrifice. Like he knows that he's going into a situation that will probably leave him dead, but that's not like really direct combat. And so that to me that's what really sticks out about this film is that the samurai are so all powerful, but Kurosawa and his writers found a way to convey their strength beyond their skill. Their skill ultimately isn't what saves them, protects them, but it's their minds and it's their willingness to sacrifice everything for these people. And with that, that's everything I have to say for now about Seven Samurai. So I'll (laughs) I'll turn it over to you, Will. what, what about you, Will? Any summing up thoughts as we, we finish this out? No, I think I said everything I need to say for now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know I just like boomed the whole thing. But uh, what, what about you, Sam? Do you have anything boomed to add? The whole thing. That's, uh, I mean, I could, as we said, we could go on for days and days, possibly weeks about this. Uh, I just, I think uh, Hayashi's death, actually, that moment really hit me. It's It reminded me of uh, that moment in... Uh, in uh, Avengers Infinity War. That's sort of when they realize, yeah. yep, we're in the end game now. Like that's when it's going down. Uh, and that's, and that's sort of, that sort of, uh, is, uh, an example of probably the one thing I would, I would single out as loving about this movie is that there's always something around the corner. It never gets predictable. It never falls in a rut. There's always something new and interesting that happens that doesn't feel like it's forced or anything. Uh, and just feels so natural and so, like you you i i find myself wondering like wow kurosawa had to think out like all of these plot points and the co-writers of course they had to think about all these plot points what was going to happen when it was going to happen yeah. how it was going to happen feels like it, it's one of those movies that i i find myself having to remind myself that it's a movie that they didn't just travel back in time to 1586 and just film all of this <laughs> stuff going on like it's that 
it's that good, I think. And uh, obviously, all the technical advancements it's made. I uh, I forget. Did you mention like all the innovations it made with slow motion? Because uh, that is certainly it was revolutionary. Yeah. yeah, a few films have I think utilized slow motion as a style as well as Kurosawa has, to be totally honest, because it doesn't overuse it. It uses it, not like I was saying before, not to, for visceral thrills, but it always has a purpose. Because it's yeah. always him being like, hey, hey, this is happening, and you need to actually think about what's happening on screen right now. Yeah, there's, and it's in a way that you notice it, too. It's not trying to hide itself. Yeah. Like, there's when, like, you know, a character who's just been stabbed or something will collapse to the ground in slow motion and there will be no sound. And it's like, yeah. oh my goodness, this is real. Uh, so many things to touch on, but I know obviously we can't. Um, we've gone on enough as it is. Uh, I, I love everything about it. I can't point out a single flaw I have with it. And it's, it's, it's one of the few movies. It's, I know we're not doing the grade system, but it's, it, this is an A-plus for sure. Um, it's, I, I, I can't get enough of it. It's, it's prophetic because I think some people listening right now probably thinking to themselves, hey, you know, how did how did Sam meet John? Well, here's what <laughs> happened. I was in the middle of recording a podcast. Someone came to me and was like, John, this guy named Adonis is in this hut and he's taken Bridget Surdock as hostage. <laughs> and so I shaved my head. And next thing oh I know, goodness. Sam comes up to me and is like, I want to be your disciple. <laughs> And I'm like, uh, get out of here. <laughs> Attempting thoughts. The now conspiring fans are just are doing a spit take all over their dashboard right now. That's magnificent. Yes, yes, they're having a... Now, there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Oh. That's my terrible Ben Kenobi. <laughs> Does not get it whatsoever. That's, all right. John Guess. How about that? Did you want me to give it a shot? I know that this is... This is oh, this please, you. Please, Alec Guinness, okay. everybody. Now, there's applause. a name I haven't heard in many, many years. Uh, never done much that better before. than mine. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, on that extra lighthearted note, uh, we want to thank all of you for right. listening to our latest extra milestone. And I'm surprised we kept it to under two hours considering the content. <laughs> and we are, we legitimately are holding back, but that is just simply because this is a film that we think everybody should see and hopefully talk about because I, I am surprised there isn't like a seven samurai cast out there. I, I think that it would be extremely successful, or at least I would listen to it. So that's that's one person. But with that, mm. uh, let's let's <laughs> tease. Of course, what we're going to be talking about next month. It's down to two films. Uh, uh, is it I'll, down to two? I think so. I thought so. Uh, <laughs> I had it to three or four, but hey, uh, I think it was point. more down to two. And we want to have a special guest, of course, for that one. But uh, Will Ashen, okay. we'll let you we'll let you tease this. What, which films are they, and which one are which one are you gunning for? Uh, at this point, I honestly don't know what the two are because we keep <laughs> switching it. That's fair. <laughs> See, I was I was like Sam. I thought we were down to four, so I could not. Is it um? Is it Stalker and uh, four and uh, four hundred blows at this point? Yes, Stalker. The 1979 film, uh, is it 79? 79, yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, the Andrew Tarkovsky film. And then, of course, 400 Blows, which is one, one of the most well-beloved French New Wave films from uh, Truffaut. Yeah. Seven Samurai, a uh, top 10 favorite of Andre Tarkovsky as well. So ah. a little cross-programming there. All right. Well, I don't want to get into a tangent. I feel tempted to, to talk about Tarkovsky and Claire Denis <laughs> and a whole bunch of other things we don't have time for. With that, we oh, yeah. will, that's where we'll leave you all this week, or this month, I should say, on Extra Milestone. 
Uh, we definitely recommend just watch both films. Watch 400 Blows. It's only an hour and a half or so. Uh, Stalker is a bit more of a time commitment, but uh, I think you'll probably find that it's worth it based on what I've heard. I've never seen Stalker. So if we end up seeing Stalker, I get to talk, I get to see that for the first time and have that perspective. 400 Blows, I think we've all seen at least parts of it. Uh, I've seen the whole thing and then whatever. But with that, we'll see you all next month for Extra Milestone. Thanks as always for listening. Thank you, Sam and Will, for taking the time to watch this entire film and talk about it. And it's a pleasure as always. You can, as always, you can find more Cinemahawks content, cinemahawks.com, our Patreon, our social media pages. Head there, do that. And special shout out to all of our patrons who are listening to this early. Uh, we can't thank you enough for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode ahead of schedule. So, yeah. thank you, with patrons. That, thank you as always. With that, from the Internet California, I am John Gurney. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. And from the Internet Colorado, I'm Sam Nolan. See you next time.